Today's scripture reading comes from various portions of Genesis chapters 6 and 7. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 17. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This is the word of God. If, you, uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, for the past month, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis teaches us what's wrong with the world and what's God doing to redeem the world and all that's broken. And today, on a fitting day like today, uh, we're going to learn about Noah's Ark. Uh, it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, uh, and it's a cool story if you learned it as a kid. Uh, but people have a few questions that are disturbing. Um, one, did God really wipe out the earth? Did God really wipe out the earth? Is, so, and if he did, then is he a God of love or is he a God of wrath? Is he God of anger? And so we're going to have to look at three things today. <clears throat> we're going to look at the pain of God. We're going to look at, look at the evil of man, the sin of man, and lastly, the cure for that sin. The pain of God, the evil of man, and then the cure 
uh, for that evil, for that sin. First, we're going to look at the pain of God. <clears throat> and we see this in the beginning, verses 5 to 6, and you also see it again in verses 11 to 12. God saw the wickedness of man, that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And it says that his heart was filled with pain. There's, there's pain. There's anger. There's wrath. Not because he's a God of hate, but because he's a God of love. It doesn't say here that God, the Bible doesn't say that God feels love. Feelings change all the time. Feelings go up and down. It says that God is love. Love is part of his nature. It's his essence. So our sin is so incongruent from from his nature, so distant from who he is, the very nature of who he is. He is the opposite then. There's an opposite quality. There's wrath towards our sinfulness, towards those who sin. Now, let me kind of bring this down to where we are here. Anyone who's ever loved anybody, Parents, you look at your children, um, spouses, you know, you look at one another. Anyone who's ever loved somebody, when you see them making bad decisions, when, uh, when you see them uh, taking uh, a left when they should be taking a right, there's pain. It hurts you. There's anger. Not because you hate them. I mean, if you've known anybody who's in the middle of an addiction, you don't dote on them, Right? There's such love in there that there's anger. It's the anger that comes out. There's pain and there's anger, not because you hate them, but because you love them. If you've ever been hurt by somebody, you say, oh, I trusted this person. I trusted, I trusted him. I trusted her. There's pain. There's wrath. Not because you hated them, but because you love them. To the degree that you love them, there's going to be pain. The pain, the wrath is proportional, in fact, to the love that you have for them. And if that's the case between finite human beings, how much more is it for an infinite God that loves his people? He's filled with pain. That's what the text says. Literally, in Hebrew, it says there's this deep, unfulfilled longing, such as when a father or a lover abandons you. It's that pain that you feel, the deepest pain, the deepest type of longing. Why? Because The Bible says we are his children. The Bible says we are his lover. What does that mean? God has chosen voluntarily to bind his heart with us. He didn't need us. We tend to do that because there's an emptiness. We tend to do that because there's this longing that extends out, and we try to get other people to fill that longing. That's not why God did it. God didn't need his creation, but once he made us, He had chosen to knit his heart with ours. He tied his joy with our joy. So when something goes wrong with us, there's pain. Now, parents, their love, as much as they love their children, it can still be selfish because the love is part of a need to fulfill fulfill themselves or because their child has become a source of their worth. It's nothing compared to the love that God has for his people. It's an unselfish love that he has for his people, and yet... How do we respond to that love? We said what? We don't need you. 
we don't care for you, we don't trust you, we, uh, we don't, we've forgotten about you, we blame you, that's what we do. And he could have wiped us out right there. He could have ended us right there, but instead he decided he has chosen to suffer for us, to suffer for us. And so he weeps, and, he, and he's in pain for our sin. He grieves. Now, when God saw Adam and Eve do what they did in the garden, an act of rebellion, tremendous rebellion, he knew he was going to suffer. Then why did he let it happen? Knowing that it would bring about tremendous suffering, why would he let it happen? Why did he choose to suffer? Why did he choose to be in pain? This is very important for us who suffer. And many of us, all of us, are suffering in some way all the time. Why did God choose to suffer himself? Why did God choose to be in pain himself? Now think about this. Whenever we ask this, we're really thinking of evil and suffering from our perspective, from our point of view, our vantage point. We say this, I can't see any good reason why God would let this happen. Look at the evil out there. Look at the injustice and the oppression. Look at the darkness that's in my life. Why would God allow that to happen? But think about this. If you believe that God, appealing to God, praying to God, if you can appeal and look at God as powerful enough to stop the evil and the injustice and the oppression and the darkness in your own soul, and yet he doesn't, then he must be wise enough to let it continue. Because if God knew all this and yet still chose to suffer, so either he didn't know, right, Right? And so that means he's not wise, he doesn't see, and so he's not wise, or he's not powerful enough to stop it. You see that? If we say, oh, there's, there's no good reason for this, we tend to say, well, I can't think of a good reason for the suffering, so there must be no good reason, which is terrible logic. It's terrible, and it, it, it's not even a question of wisdom. It's a question of intelligence, right? We would never say that, right? But we tend to say, well, I can't think of a good reason, so God must not exist, God himself let history go on. Even though, even though it filled his heart with pain and with grief. And if he's willing to do that, if he's chosen to do that, it must be worth it. God knows the entire story, designed the entire story. And he wasn't just dealing with our suffering. His own heart has been filled with pain. Look at the perseverance of God. Look in the endurance of God. The patient, long-suffering love of God. That's the pain of God. First, second, um, we're going to look at the evil of man, the sinfulness of man. Verses, verse 7 and verse 13 says what? Because the earth is filled with violence, I will wipe mankind from the face of the earth. That's the judgment of God. You know what that means? That means that God, as loving as he is, because he's a loving God, can be unhappy with the choices that you make in your life day to day. That means that God, because he's a loving God, because you are his child, because he's filled with love, because he is love, he can be unhappy with your choices, your lifestyle, the things that you do. Now, if you believe in God's judgment, that's going <laughs> to, especially our generation today, it fills us with problems. We have problems in the mind. We have problems in the heart. Right? It's soulfully, we just struggle with that. But you need to see this. You need to see that if you don't believe in God's judgment, there are even bigger problems. There are even bigger problems in your head, in your heart. Because today, if you read this narrative and you say, man, that's so primitive. I mean, God wiping out the earth, that's so primitive, that's so, so wrathful, it's so ancient. I don't believe in a God like that. The God I believe is a God of love. Then you're still going to have huge problems with evil. It's going to be insurmountable in your life. You know why? 
because without God's judgment, if God were to not demonstrate justice to even the slightest of slights, evil wins. Evil wins in the end. And if evil wins in the end, then either God, either God is not all-powerful because he can't stop the evil, or he's not all-loving, he's not good, he's not faithful because he's chosen not to end evil. You can't just have a God that's all-loving all the time. That kind of love has no cost. It has no cost. So it can't be a God that's doing that out of love. He's either at best maybe ignorant, at best maybe not all-powerful. Let's talk a little bit about evil. One, evil, evil or violence, it's not unnatural. We are horrified by the evils in our world today. The internet has kind of blown that even more out of proportion. I can't tell if that's just the way it's always been or things feel like they've gotten worse, right? We just have greater visibility. Either way, it's natural. Evil is natural. By nature, by nature, even at the smallest level, I'm a bi- I studied biology, I did biological research, okay? Uh, that was my earlier life. That's my, that my past life. What do you know about nature? Big things eat smaller things, right? Microbes are eaten by worms, are eaten by fish, are eaten by animals, are eaten by humans. So on what basis can you say that anything in nature is wrong, that any of this type of violence is wrong? You have to say that it's natural. How can you say then, with what eyes, with what perception can you say that rape is wrong unless there's something outside of nature telling you that this is wrong? Unless you believe that there's something above nature. If there's no God, if there's no God, then evil, natural, the stronger, devouring the weak, it's natural. It's normal. Nietzsche says, Frederick Nietzsche, right, says what? If there's no God, if there is no God, even moral outrage against violence is a power play. It's just the stronger trying to devour the weaker. You see that? Number two, evil goes deep. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just an outward thing. That means for every act of physical violence, there are many more acts of psychological and emotional violence in our lives. Every day, relationships are breaking. Every day, hopes are being dashed to pieces. Every day, your dreams are coming to an end. Your self-image, your reputation is being assassinated by somebody else. Your heart is broken. And so that means that evil goes a lot deeper than just what's on the outside. It's very deep. It's soulful. It's cosmic. Thirdly, evil is very practical. In some cases, it actually even seems sensible or logical. When somebody wrongs you, and you're angry or you're bitter, what happens? You're going to be poisoned by that. That's why, what do we tend to do? We tend to retaliate for, against them. We tend to withdraw. People who hurt us, uh, you know, we either retaliate against them or we withdraw from them. But you can't just let it go. That's one thing that's common across. You can't just let it go. You can't just forgive. And if you can just forgive, then you've never truly been violated. You've never truly been damaged. You've never truly been hurt. And you've never truly loved, you see, that's why God can't just let it go. That's why God can't just be a, a loving God like Santa Claus just loves everybody. That's why God can't just forgive. He's infinitely loving, and because he's infinitely loving, there's infinite pain when there's betrayal. You can't just let it go. It undermines his very essence. It undermines his very nature of love. And lastly, evil is endless. Unless you believe that there's a just God, if you've actually ever been betrayed in your life, if you've actually ever experienced some sort of violence in your life, you are going to want to pick up the sword. Think about it. If your child gets beat up by somebody, 
outside. I mean, viciously, horribly, God forbid, that happens. Your first in- instinct, I remember a, a story, a quick story. When I was in, in seminary, we were in the middle of a class, and uh, one of our classmates, we were in a cohort, one of our classmates was late, and he's never late. And so we were wondering, wow, that must be, it's kind of weird that he would, uh, he would be this late. So, um, you know, in the middle of class, this guy comes in, and he is a mess. He's crying, he's angry, and so it was so visible that my professor stopped the class and asked him what's wrong, and he said, today, in the hood, my daughter got beat up by three other girls. They just, for no reason, just started pounding on her, and she came home a bloody mess. And my first instinct was to charge out there, get those three girls, and murder all three of them. And so I'm dealing with wrath, and I'm dealing with, why? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to forgive. That's normative. How am I supposed to respond to this? Where is God in this? How am I supposed to soulfully feel this need and this desire to forgive? You see that? By nature, you will want to pick up the sword, and you're going to get sucked into endless violence because sin is natural, because sin is deep, because it's beyond the physical, it's cosmic, it's, it's beyond the practical, it's endless. Judgment is necessary or else. And if you don't believe that, you will have a much bigger problem with evil because it wins in the end. So what's the cure? What's the cure for God's pain? What's the cure for our sin? How can God be both a lover and a judge? How can God be merciful and yet just? How can God be all love and yet be all wrath? How can God be suffering and just? And the answer here is the flood. The flood tells us that God is not just infinitely holy and infinitely just, but the flood tells us he is infinitely loving. Because the flood is not just a solution. We can't look at this and say, well, that's, that was God's, you know, in that time period, his solution. It's a pattern that he sets for his solution and how he's going to redeem the world. The flood is not simply the judgment. It's a pattern for his judgment. And we're going to see this. Through the flood, there is going to be judgment and there's going to be salvation. In fact, the salvation comes through the judgment. Through the flood, you're going to see the brokenness and objective brokenness, the evil of man, and yet through that evil, you see salvation. Verses 8 to 10, and then you see the passage from verses 14 to 22. God demonstrates favor. He shows favor on Noah and his family. And he has Noah build this ark and basically puts him in this ark. And in verse 22, it says, Noah obeyed. Very simple, Noah obeyed. And the author of Hebrews explains this in in chapter 11. Uh, He says, Noah was warned of things he didn't see. That means that he was warned of the storm. He was warned of God's judgment. But in holy fear, built the ark. Noah believed. That's, That's holy fear. He believed. Noah obeyed. That's faith. Faith is belief with teeth. Faith is belief with feet. Faith is belief in action. 
In other words, the gospel is more than just something that you receive that's, that seems rational to you. Your mind, you kind of think about it. Your words, you talk about it. It's got to be more than that. Noah believed in God, but it was more than just belief. When God warned him of things that he could not see himself, it shaped him. It was true to him. It shaped him. His belief let what God says about reality define his view of reality. He sees the sun. He sees the birds chirping. God says there's going to be a storm and a flood and judgment. And he saw and he obeyed. It shaped his reality. He trusted God. And that trust, it enabled him to see a reality beneath the reality. God said, look at the evil. Look at the brokenness out there. There's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. And Noah responded. Noah believed, and he responded. For years in the middle of nowhere, he built this ark. The sun's shining. The birds are chirping. The people are committing all different acts of evil, and they're mocking Noah. But Noah builds this ark in the middle of, like, Idaho. That's what he's doing. Why? Why does he do that? Noah says this, I will not be defined by what I see right now, visible reality. Not by today's views of reality, their view of sex, their view of wealth, their view of parenting, their view of fun, their view of spirituality. I'm going to be defined by what God says. That's faith. That's faith. Otherwise, if you're defined by your wealth, wealth becomes your ark. Then it's about wealth accumulation, wealth increasing your power, building, getting stronger. You're just committing the stronger devouring the weak. You're just doing what's natural. It's going to lead to evil, the violence. You see that? Because that's your salvation. That's your ark. If your career is going to be your salvation, it's going to be your position, your title, your advancement over other people's salaries, other people's position, over other people's title at the cost of other people's advancement. What is that? That's the stronger, the varying, the weaker. It's the violence. If you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling with anger or pain or hurt, then it's about self-preservation. It's about self-protection. It's about your honor. It's going to be the stronger, dominating the, and devouring the weak. You see that? There's the violence. What about parenting? If your children, your family is your ark, then it's going to be your children above and beyond other people's children. It's going to be what you want for your kids, and that's going to set the tone and the pace for the way you see the rest of the world. Then you're, there's coddling and there's overprotection. There's going to be envy and jealousy mixed in there. There's competition. There's violence. See that? Anything that the world offers to you as a solution for your insecurity or your emptiness or your deepest longings, anything that the world offers as your salvation or your ark, well, it becomes your salvation. It becomes your ark. It's going to lead to a natural course. It's going to lead you along a natural course of violence, inner violence, soulful violence. And when the real storm comes, you will drown you will sink. That is not the judgment of God acting out on you out of his anger. That is something you have chosen. You have chosen the judgment. You don't get thrown into judgment. You choose it over and over and over and over. It's going to play out over and over and over and over in your life until you sink and until you drown. If you live by sight, you will develop a spiritual myopia, nearsightedness, so you can only see exactly what's in front of you. You're going to develop a very, very short-sighted view of the world, and it's going to be very inaccurate. Fake news, essentially. Noah was warned, 
and Noah saw, and he believed and he obeyed. And so what happens? Noah and his family, they enter the ark, and the author of Hebrews says that Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the heart of the Bible. How do you find shelter in the storm? Because the Bible says you can't find it on your own. The Bible says you can't earn it on your own. The Bible says you can't even build it on your own. You can only receive it. Had God not spoken to Noah, had God not reached Noah, had God not spoken and and called out to Noah, Noah would have drowned. You see that? The judgment is coming. It is an objective reality. Noah would have drowned. You can only receive. You can't earn it. You can't find it. Noah became an heir to righteousness. What's an heir? Let's say there's this woman, incredibly brilliant, works really hard, knows how to present herself in front of people, and so she starts to grow and advance in her career, and she becomes an executive, and she amasses a tremendous amount of wealth, accomplishes great things. Uh, She made lots of money, but she gets sick, and so she passes all this wealth onto her children, her children get to a certain age. How'd they get wealthy? Because they worked for it? Because they earned it? Because they deserved it? No. It's because of the death of their mother. They are every bit as wealthy as their mother because in a way they have been united relationally to their mother. You see that? And the text here says that, and, and the Hebrews says that Noah became an heir of righteousness. In other words, he received righteousness. He got rich. He got wealthy. The wealth we're talking about, the currency we're talking about is the approval of God. Righteousness is the currency of approval from God. And so it says that Noah got wealthy. He was an heir of righteousness. He received God's approval as the currency of of his faith, an outworking of his faith, in in a sense. He got rich. He didn't earn it. It came through a relationship, through God's suffering, through God's work, through God's pain. Religion says something else. A lot of people here grew up in a church. Religious people say this at the heart. They don't say outwardly, right? Because we always always say it's God's grace. But in the heart, you say, I got to work for it. There's a deep insecurity that resides at the heart of a religious person. I got to earn this. I need to work very hard so I don't lose people in my life, so I don't lose acclaim or approval from people in my life. I've got to work. And the moment you see somebody else kind of advancing, you want to take it from them. There's the violence. Religion is built on the same natural course of violence and strong devouring the weak as any other worldly pursuit. Faith in Christ gives us righteousness. You receive it by faith alone in Christ. If you could try to earn it, that's, that results in violence, envy, and jealousy. It's why we want to be wealthy. It's why we want to be beautiful. It's why we want to have sparkling careers because that is the token, that is the trophy, the mark of our earning approval. When you have these things, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. You feel accomplished. You feel approvable, acceptable. It gives us a sense of righteousness. 
But to earn that, there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of stepping on people's necks. You see that? There's lots of comparisons and envy and pride and arrogance. It brings up and, 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 it, and it gives life and birth to all the evil that's already in there in our souls. That's how you know if the gospel is planted deeply. Because if you're constantly complaining about something, if you're constantly talking about other people, if you're constantly gossiping, that's at, religion is at the heart. That's what's at the heart. What you're saying is, I'm okay, you see. Those people are a mess. Or maybe I'm kind of a mess, but those people are more of a mess. You see that? You're living out evil. You're living out violence. But as an heir, because of a relationship with Jesus, because you are united with him, and thus you are an heir of righteousness in him, then you are every bit as loved, every bit as honored, every bit as glorious, every bit as rich as Christ. That's going to make you humble because you didn't deserve it. It's going to make you humble because you did nothing to earn it. It's going to make you very bold in a different way because you can do nothing to lose it, you see. Noah goes into the ark. He hides in the ark. The rain is just plastering, pelting the ark. The floodwaters rise. Noah and his family are hiding in the ark. He received, he trusted he was saved. That's the meaning of verses 14 to 21. You know, you go to a doctor. Uh, you listen to, you hear the doctor. The doctor tells you that um, you need surgery. You have this thing growing inside you, and I have to remove it from you. It's going to cause some pain. There's going to be some pain in your life, but you're going to be fine. Just trust me. I'm good at this. I'm the best at this. Just trust me. And you listen to him. You say, I trust you. And so what do you do on the day? You get prepped, right? You got you to take off everything, right? You put on this gown. And then you, uh, you get on the operating table. You go to the operating room. And what do you see? You see this very sterile table. You see straps. And you're like, what are those straps for? Right? Aren't you putting me to sleep? You see needles. You see... Like the circle thing with the spikes? I'm just making this up. I've never been on an operating room, so I have no idea. Okay? You see, um, you see a bunch of stuff, right? You, uh, you see lots of people. You just smell. It's very, very, like, palpable, right? Uh, you see people rushing around and, and getting ready, and they're, they're, I imagine they, they don't smile. I imagine they're always, like, you know, and they're kind of putting all this together. You're like, why is no one smiling here? I thought, I thought this is easy. I thought this is a good doctor. And you're naked, Right? And you're vulnerable. You got no defense. The tools look very spiky and sharp, right? Uh, and what happens? There's a fear. You're afraid. That's the brokenness. Because you realize there's something in there that's bad. And it's going to hurt. That's the brokenness. That's the storm. The fear that you feel. That's the storm. What are you doing? You're living by sight. You see everything. And you're like, uh, can we delay briefly? How, how much longer can I go without needing this kind of surgery? You're living by sight. But instead, what happens is you're, because you're living by sight, you're trusting the doctor less when you actually should be trusting him more because what is the doctor telling you? That that thing that's growing in you is actually more dangerous than the tools that you see. That thing that's growing in you can actually kill you, whereas this stuff, although it's going to hurt for a little bit, it's going to save you. You see that? You have to trust the doctor more because the real horror is what's inside. 
The real brokenness, the real damage is deeper. It's inside. Why does the flood happen? Why the flood? It does two things. One, it gives us a pattern for new life. One hand, it temporarily stops the evil, just kind of puts a pause button on the evil for a little bit, the human violence. But we know, verses 11 to 12, right off the bat, and, and the Bible is not foolish, right? First, God says they're corrupted, verse 11 to 12. They're corrupted. The actual Hebrew, it says they are destroying themselves in their own destruction. That's what the actual Hebrew is saying. They're self-destructing and as a result destroying themselves, and so I'm going to dest- destroy the people who are self-destructing, Right? But think about this. The same water that sinks everyone else is actually lifting the ark. It's through that judgment that Noah and his family are redeemed. There's new life there. Two, it shows us that God is still committed to the world. There's a pattern of renewal there. There's a pattern of new life, right, salvation. There's also a pattern of renewal And the result is through the evil, through the violence, through the brokenness, through the judgment came grace. Came grace. And it's not complete. We know it's not, God's intent was not to wipe out all evil, in a sense, right? Because there's still evil. Right off the bat, you see Noah, and he gets drunk, and he screws up his family. So God didn't save Noah because Noah was perfect. God didn't save Noah. Noah was an heir. He received righteousness. And God didn't intend this flood to end sin once and for all. The storm and the water, it was a pattern for the ultimate judgment that was to come. And so throughout the Bible, you see many storms. In the book of Jonah, Jonah's in a boat, and there's a storm. And what happens is Jonah ends up in a fish. And the fish, in the fish, inside the belly of the fish, Jonah cries out, all the waves and the billows have come over me. I've been swept over by the waves, essentially. And what he says is, I am cast out of God's presence. Centuries later, in John chapter 6, you see another storm. The disciples, Jesus' disciples are in the boat. And the waters get very, very rough. But you see Jesus walking on the water. Look at his control. In the midst of the storm... And Jesus is just walking. Everybody else is terrified. What does Jesus have? What does Jesus see? What does Jesus know? He's just walking. And uh, what does he say? Someone greater than Jonah is here. What does that mean? There will be a greater storm. One day there will be an ultimate storm and God's total wrath will come. And who will be at the bottom of that storm? It's Jesus. Jesus weathers the storm. Jesus braves the storm. Jesus is swallowed up in the storm. When Noah builds the ark, God tells him to use a certain kind of wood. And that word, uh, when you translate that word in the Hebrew, it's the word eitz. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the word eitz. It's a word that's always used for wood, but it's always used in the context of God's judgment. So whenever you see that word, you see that's God's judgment. It represents God's total judgment. All the way into the New Testament, later on, it's tra- that word is translated in context to mean the cross, the cross of Christ. And so what we're saying here is that Noah was saved because he hid inside the ark. We are saved. There's a greater salvation because there will be a greater judgment. And we, 
in Jesus are saved because we get to hide in the ark that is Christ, that is Jesus, who was nailed to the wood of God's ultimate judgment, and that was the cross. The cross, what did it do? It represented the judgment, the ultimate judgment for those who do not believe. But it gave new life to everyone who does believe. And the cross shows us that God is still committed to renewal. So on one hand, the cross represents new life, new life for the sinner, and yet it also represents a pattern of God's grace, a pattern of God's grace that God is still committed to renewal because although he judges the world through that judgment, through that brokenness, through the bitterness and the fire, it comes grace. And we, believe, and we receive this grace. We are the heirs of righteousness. Just like Noah. How? Because we have to hide in the cross just as Noah hid in the ark. It's the cross that saves. On the cross, Jesus says what? All of God's wrath is pelting him. All of God's wrath is pelting him like a wave, like billows, and he's being swept over by God's wrath for the penalty of our sins, everything that the human race deserved. And what do we see on the cross? There's a real storm. There's darkness as Jesus hung on the cross. The sky grew dark. The earth started to shake. It was a real storm. And Jesus is drowning. And Jesus is sinking for our salvation. So on the cross, Jesus cries out, I'm cast out of God's presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That means that I'm suffering the ultimate pain, the ultimate unfulfilled longing of being separated from God, ripped apart from the love of God. There's no mercy for me. There's nothing I can hide behind. He was stripped bare and naked and received the full wrath of the judgment of God for our sins. He faced the ultimate storm. The ultimate wrath, it devoured him. The violence that we deserved, that natural violence completely swept over Christ. Why? We know that God is committed to justice when we see the cross because we see the blood and the pain and the wrath poured out on Christ. You see that? We know that there will be an end to every evil, not a single evil, even the ones that we believe people have gotten away with, the deep internal family sins, the external sins of betrayal, the sins that go beyond that, the horrors and the oppression and the evil and the injustice, not a single slight will go unpunished. That's what the cross shows us. Yet anyone who hides in the judgment, the judgment wood of the cross will be saved. And we see that not only was God committed to justice, Jesus was willing to die for his people. That means that God is committed to a sacrificial, suffering love for his people. That God demonstrates holiness on the cross every bit as much as he demonstrates justice on the cross, every bit as much as he demonstrates mercy on the cross and love on the cross. And so they say that on the cross, the judgment of God, and the mercy of God embrace. What are you hiding in? What ark are you trying to find salvation in? Because you guys watch Batman, right? The dark night rises, there's a storm coming. There's a storm coming, and everything and everyone will sink. Are you able to see the reality 
beneath that reality, beyond your visible reality, in your homes, hidden inside your careers, hidden behind your children, hidden behind your families, hidden behind your good name, hidden behind your bank account and your 401ks? Are you able to see the reality beneath the reality? Will your ark stay afloat is my question today. Hide yourself in Christ. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Save from sin and make me pure. Through the judgment, we are lifted up. When sorrows come, when your problems feel like they're a weight that are going to crush you, I've been there, I've been there even in the past month for an entire month, get inside the ark that is Christ, the gospel. That's how you will survive your storm. Let's pray.